We seem to spend our whole lives securing our futures. We're told from a very early age to gather the things that we need for life. Uh, A good education, a good job, uh, a house, uh, finding a marriage partner that will help deliver those same things, providing stability for the future. And often this is what people think God will do for us as well. With God in your life, he will bless you with health and wealth and wisdom and it's easy to have a view of God where he is there to meet my needs on my terms. And the goal of life is happiness and God is just there to help deliver on that goal. That's how some people consider it. But what happens when you don't get the job you wanted, when you fail the course you really thought you needed to have, when a few weeks before the wedding your fiancé pulls out and thinks you're not the one, when the builder goes bankrupt and you just have a slab and you've lost your deposit and lost everything? What happens when your spouse walks out on you? What then? Does that mean that God has failed? What happens when the wicked get ahead in life? You know, the person who lies and cheats, they're the one who passes the course. The person who is ruthless in the workplace, they're the one who gets paid more for you and they chose the other builder and they get the great house. The girl who sleeps around, she's the one that gets the promotion. What then? You know, how is it that the wicked get ahead in life and you don't? Has God failed you then? You know, can you trust God in the circumstances that you find yourself in your life? Now, for Habakkuk, he saw the injustice and violence around him and thought that God had failed in his task to bring justice. And we saw that in chapter 1, where the Babylonians, that more wicked nation than the people of God, the Israelites, how they have actually brought God's judgment. And there's that question that Habakkuk raises. How on earth can God do that? How can God use a wicked nation to bring his judgment on them? In chapter 2, we heard God's response. God says, I see it. Don't worry. I see the violence. I see the injustice. I see the idolatry and exploitation. And I will act. But not yet. God has set a day when he will judge the Babylonians for their sin. And in the meantime, God calls on Habakkuk to do what? To wait. To wait. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God will act, just not yet. And the act of waiting is that of exercising faith, a confidence and trust in God's promise, a promise that he will act in the future. And what we saw yesterday was the revolutionary idea that the person who is in right relationship with God is the one who trusts God at his word, that God isn't interested in that outward moral performance as the basis of a relationship with him, but of a relationship with him through faith, through trusting him. And we also saw that that was nothing revolutionary, in fact that God has always considered sinners right with him because they trust him. Going back to Abraham, King David. 
How is it that a holy God can consider sinners right with him? Because of the death of Jesus on their behalf. That they look forward to that day when Jesus would come and die in the place of sinners so that they could be forgiven. And so the right response to God is to trust Jesus as Lord and Saviour. That's where we left things off yesterday. We left with a question, didn't we? Remember the question was, will Habakkuk, will he trust? Will he wait for God to fulfil his plans? And so we turn to chapter 3. Now, uh, the genre, the style of writing in chapter 3, is really different to anything else we've seen in the book so far. Uh, You might have noticed it in the layout. And Habakkuk's response comes in the form of poetry. It's a song. You can see in verse 1 that our English translators don't know what to do with the word shagayanoth. Now, in my footnotes, I don't know about yours, it says it's probably a musical term. And you might also see the Hebrew word salah halfway through verse 3 and at the end of verse 9 and at the end of verse 13. And it's often in italics and shifted to the right. And if you went back to the Psalms, you'd see it everywhere through the Psalms. And they don't know what it means. They think it's some kind of um, musical direction to it. And you'll see it there. Uh, so in our Bibles, it's laid out like poetry. And Hebrew poetry often happens in parallel statements. And our English translators give each statement a new line. So in my NIV, uh, verse 3, uh, it's got you can see the parallelism. God came from Timan, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. You've got those two lines. Now, it's not just a song, but it's also a prayer. It's a prayer of the prophet. So look at verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. And what we're going to see is that it's a prayer that God would act in the future in the same way he has in the past. That because God has acted in the past in a particular way, Habakkuk can now have confidence that God will act in the future. Verse 2 summarises what we're about to hear and the rest of the prayer. So verse 2, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk is calling on God, saying, God, you know how you've acted in the past? Do that again. Do that again. And he sees those awesome deeds of God and wants him to renew that action. But not just to come in judgment, but also come in mercy. If he doesn't come in mercy, then everyone will be swept up in judgment. Now, verses 3 to 7, we've got a multitude of illusions about the appearance of God as this divine warrior how he's rescued his people and brought judgment on the nations. Uh, Now, it's written in the third person, so he, that's verses 3 to 7, and then verses 8 to 15, we hear the report of the battle which he's come to fight, and this is in the second person, you. Um, And we're going to see all these illusions going through. In fact, you are going to see them. You're going to do a little bit of uh, work together in maybe little groups of two or three. And they're not quotes from earlier parts in the Bible, but kind of hints of things that have happened in the past. Now, this happens in the Bible all the time. Often you'll get a quote. And we saw chapter 2, verse 4, how that part of Habakkuk is quoted in the New Testament, basically word for word. But often in the Bible, you kind of get hints of things. There's kind of allusions to things. There's what's called an intertextuality about the Bible. There's a connectedness. And you know it for yourself. You read the Bible 
and then you read some more of the Bible and you come back and read that bit again, the first bit, and you think, wow, I see all these new things because I read this other stuff. And then you go read the other stuff and you see all those things because of the interconnectedness of the Bible. Now, there's someone who um, kind of drew this using a diagram. I love nerdy kind of diagrams. And what they did, they picked up, you know, a cross-reference Bible, how it kind of connects things? They graphed the 63,000 cross-references, okay? And it looked something like this. Do we have the picking? Okay. That's it. Now, each, each pixel across the bottom represents a chapter of the Bible, okay? And it's kind of like, ah, oh, this chapter relates to this chapter, and this chapter relates to this chapter, okay? It's crazy. Now, I'm going to zoom in. Now, I forget exactly which bit is, um, it's hard to tell because of the, the picture. Zoom in on Habakkuk. Okay, so let's have a look. Okay. Now, that is the density with which those cross-references have been referred to. So, I forget which one of these. It's kind of, you know, Habakkuk is a bit of this. The text itself is refers to itself, like within the book. You can have that intertextuality occur within in a text, but then you can have it referring to other parts of the Bible. And that's why when you read the scriptures, it's just such a rich experience uh, and that connectedness. Now, what we're about to do, if you don't know your Bible well, that's okay. Uh, Go with the flow, listen to the others, and think, okay, this is a journey I'm on, learning more about the scriptures, and I want to I want to get into it more. Uh, but what we're going to do, I want you to have a look at really verses uh, 3 onwards. Actually, I'll help you with the first one because the first one's pretty tough. We're going to be looking at the past actions of God. And I'll do the first one. And then really from verse 3, halfway through and onwards, I want you in a little group to think, where is this coming from? You know, kind of what, what's he, what, what might he be alluding to? And there's kind of no right or wrong answers at this point. It's kind of like, ah, oh, that reminds me of this thing. Because that's the intention of Habakkuk, to be able to say, ah, oh, this is the kinds of things that happened in the past. So basically anything you tell me that kind of happened in the past that you're reminded of, that's what Habakkuk's intending to happen, that you're reminded of these things. Now, the first one's tough, so I'll do it for you. So verse 3 describes how God has come in the past. So 3a, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Teman is associated with Edom in the south of the Promised Land, and Paran is around the area of Sinai to the south. I think I've got a map, Dave. Do I have a map? So we're talking Edom in the south, down here, uh, and Paran, the area south of Sinai. It's even further down here. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, Moses uses this very kind of description for God's rescue of his people from Egypt. So Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, same mountain, notice. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. Holy is there as well. And it's that picture of the experience of the Exodus, where God is leading his people from the south to the promised land. That is, God has acted in the past. He's acted in the past to rescue his people. And uh, Deborah uses very similar imagery. And you might notice there's Judges stuff in here. So if you've done a sermon series on Judges, you'll see a few things in here. But Deborah also uses that kind of imagery of God's appearing from the south when she describes God's deliverance from Sisera and Jael. So this is Judges 5 verse 4. O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. It's a picture of God's rescuing his people from oppressors. Notice also you've got that idea of God, the Holy One. God knows how to judge the wicked. He's holy. 
Now, that, I reckon that's a tough, one of the toughest ones. Just thinking about what, you know, where's Mount Paran and all that kind of stuff. Some of the other ones are easy. Um, you kind of think, oh, that reminds me of this. So get to work, groups of two or three, maybe four, and have a look and think, what do those few verses remind me of something that happened previously in the Bible? Now, those of you who are listening in tape land, uh, we'll have to have a pause and come back to them. <laughs> okay. Now, like I said, there's uh, a, in this world of illusions, as it were, not illusions, but illusions with an A, uh, it's re- making you think of things that have happened in the past in the Bible. And so uh, it, it's evoking those connections. Now, there are two ways you could do this, and one would be for you to feed back and do that. Uh, I think that that will be slower for us and it's harder for you to hear. So I'm going to go through what I thought. And if you go, oh, yeah, that's kind of things that we were talking about our group, you know, give yourself a pat on the back. Um, and uh, if I miss out on something, you've, you've got something spectacular, come and let me know because uh, I want to, I'll add to my notes. Um, so here we go. So I think verses 3b and 4, we see the glory of God as he's come. So his glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. His rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. And, uh, you know, it kind of reminded me of the experience of Moses at Mount Sinai. Uh, his face shone with a reflection of God's glory. Uh, and similar Hebrew words are used in this passage as they are used for Moses. Uh, and these rays that flash from his hand are only a glimpse of his real power, which is hidden. That's the picture. Verse 5 um, pictures what happened when God comes in glory. His destructive power. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. And as I went around the groups, everyone was kind of picking up, yeah, the Exodus experience, that God has rescued his people uh, through these plagues. Uh, his judgment has consumed those that oppose him. Uh, verse 6 describes what happened when God came to his creation. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. Um, reminded me of the events of capturing the promised land the fall of Jericho, the response of the nations trembling. Uh, And two nations are described as being terrified by the coming judgment in verse 7. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Remember Midian and and, uh, uh, Gideon? Um, You think the anguish that Gideon brought them in the book of Judges as God defeats their entire army through a few men? You know, the the torches, the... um, what did they have? Jars and break the jars and they all fought each other and the Midianites, Midianites killed each other. Um, the tense of Cushan reminds you of Othniel. This is the judge's part again. You can read this in Judges chapter 3. When Othniel goes out in God's power against King Cushan Rishathayim. Uh, so there's this defeat. God knows how to protect his people and defeat his enemies. Now, we have a transition in verse 8 to that report that's occurring in the second person, so the you section, where we hear a report of the battle that's taking place. And it kind of, first bit here seems a bit weird. You know, is God cranky with the water? You know, were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? And you think, well, the answer is no, he wasn't angry with the sea. He was angry with those that opposed God. And the imageries of God's actions uh, against the waters that then devoured the enemies. Um, what does it make you think of? Red Sea experience. As soon as you say the chariots, because you think, who had the chariots? Well, the Egyptians had the chariots. It's kind of like, no, God had the chariots. His chariots beat their chariots. And his chariots were the waters consuming them. God's judgment on them. 
He opened the path through the Jordan for his people to cross. He opened his path through the Red Sea for his people to cross and closed that Red Sea over for the Egyptians. And for Habakkuk, he needs to realise that however strong the Babylonians may be, God is stronger. He's done it in the past and he can do it again. He will fight on behalf of his people and he will win. Uh, Verses 9 to 11 describe again God's coming on the creation. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Did that? anyone get that one? Did anyone think about what that might remind them of? Jonah, Jonah yes. Yes, in, in the, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that one, but the, uh, the salvation in one sense that happened for Jonah uh, uh, there, deep broad, waves looking on high. It reminded me of Noah uh, and the flood. And you think, what's that a story about? That's a story about God punishing the wicked and delivering his people and there's time involved. Noah had to wait. Um, verse, uh, verse 11. In verse 11, the sun and the moon don't even bother coming out because of the light given by the weapons of God. You know, God's weapons are like these tracer bullets. Um, verse 11, sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. And you think of that uh, day when the sun stood still with Joshua. This is Joshua 10, verse 13. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. In verse 12, we see the purpose of all this. So chapter 3, verse 12. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in your anger you threshed the nations. God has not forgotten the evil. He isn't ignorant of what is going on. He isn't ignorant of the devastation and the wickedness of the Babylonians. He will come and has come previously to judge the wicked. And God's judgment means salvation for his people. Verse 13, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though he was about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. What does it remind you of? David and Goliath. That's what I had. David... uh, the anointed one being saved, the people delivered, and having the leader killed with his own spear. Head chopped off. We finish the se- section with a, a picture reiterating uh, God being the warrior who saves his people. Verse 15. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. And that's what he's done. Now, these events are not just interesting pieces of history. They show the character and power of God and of what he's to do, what he has done. The entire history of the universe is under the sovereign care and control of God. And if he's done it in the past, if he's revealed himself as the God who is able to rescue his people and judge the wicked, Habakkuk can have confidence that God will do that in the future. And the prophet is wanting us to think back to God's actions in the past and be absolutely clear that faith in God is not just a case of ill-placed, positive thinking of some kind. But faith in God is completely reasonable given who God is and what he has done. That even though you can look around the current circumstances and think, what on earth is God doing? 
you know that God will act. He has acted in the past and to trust him now is completely reasonable knowing who God is. You can have confidence in God and his actions for the future. It's not that everything's going to get fixed up now, but that God will act to fix everything up in the future. And so we now turn to Habakkuk's response. And it comes in two parts. The first is in verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. And and Habakkuk realises that he's standing before this warrior God, the one who knows how to save, and he's filled with terror and dread. And he's just questioned the plans of God. He's just questioned what God is going to be doing about this. But Habakkuk's response doesn't just stop there with that dread. What does he say? Have a look, verse 16. Yet... I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. God had asked him to wait and he says, I will. His trust is in God and that trust in God trumps those feelings and fears that he has and his response is that he will wait for God to act against this nation that's invading them. But Habakkuk's example of faith goes further. He doesn't just say, yeah, I'll wait. And I think this is one of the most staggering pictures of faith in the scriptures. You know, you think of Abraham and we Genesis 15, Abraham trusted God and was credited him as righteousness. And you have little pictures of what faith looks like. You know, he trusted that God would give him a child and, and God did uh, with Isaac. You have those pictures of faith. But we have, have this picture. Hebrews 11 might be another chapter when you think of pictures of faith. This, this bit here. Verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the field produces no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. And quite frankly, what you have here is a picture of complete, utter devastation, of desolation really, isn't it? You know, it's like going into the pantry and there's absolutely nothing there. There's no wheat bix, there's no flour, there's no rice, there's no orange juice, there's nothing. There's no pasta and you go down to Coles and there's nothing there. There is no food it's a picture of complete desolation, isn't it? Of there being no human means of support. And you think, someone in that circumstance, you think, in that situation, you think, God's totally abandoned them, surely. And yet, Habakkuk says, in that situation, I will rejoice in God, my Saviour. That's a statement of faith, isn't it? That's someone who, despite the circumstances around them, despite what they see around them, they know who God is and they know God will act and they trust. They wait and they trust. That's what Jesus did hanging on the cross, didn't he? All around him, desolation. Abandoned by those who are closest to him. Hung on a cross and yet what did he do? entrusted himself to his heavenly Father who had judged the wicked and saved the righteous. 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. It's a statement of faith, isn't it? In the face of desolation. What about you? Do you see the past actions of God and wait patiently for his future, trusting him? If you think about the story of the Bible, it looks a bit like this. We'll get a picky up. See, Habakkuk, if you look at the picture, you've got creation, God's kingdom being established. Abraham, the kingdom is promised. The kingdom of God is revealed in Israel's history as they come up and enter the promised land. King David, the greatness of the kingdom is foreshadowed. The kingdom of God is revealed in the prophets. And really in history, things are going bad. But their statement is, things will be good. And then you have Christ coming, his first coming. Jesus bringing in the kingdom. The kingdom of God being fulfilled in the life of Jesus himself, his resurrection from the dead and his second coming when his kingdom is complete. Now that's where Habakkuk was. And he looked back and he was looking forward to a future day when God would judge the wicked and establish the righteous, establish his kingdom. Where are you? This is where you are. You're here. Get the next slide. Is it going? That's you. You live after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and you live in a period waiting his return. That what you get to look back on is so much better than what Habakkuk was looking back on. Yeah, he looks back on, on David and Goliath and on Noah and looks back on what was happening in Judges. You get to look back on Jesus. You get to look back on his death and his resurrection. You get to look back on that and think, yes, God knows how to rescue. He knows how to do it. And I belong to him. And so you too are in that situation where you're awaiting. You're waiting on him to establish his kingdom. Waiting patiently. And Jesus is going to do it. He's going to establish God's kingdom with finality. He's coming to bring justice to this earth. And so the question is, will you trust him? Will you trust him? Will you trust him not just when things are going well? Will you trust him in adversity? When the builder goes broke, when the spouse walks out, when the children are sick, when there's no food in the pantry, will you trust him? Because those moments are the moments where you grow, where you grow in your trust in God, where you realise this is not, I don't do this in my own power, I cannot save myself, but I rely on the God who can. And the gospel tells us that our relationship with God is not somehow dependent on the circumstances of life. Other people teach that, if I can say it that way. But if things are going bad in life or things are going good good in life, it it doesn't matter. Your, Your relationship with God is rock solid because of Jesus. And you need to trust him. Now, the evil we see in our world, we do. We want it to end. And so we do, we pray like Habakkuk, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on this, on earth as it is in heaven. But we need to trust God that in his delay, he will bring justice in his time. And yet we try to alleviate the victim, the pain of victims and try to stop 
injustice and the perpetrators, but we know it will only stop until the kingdom of God is established. We know that's the case. Well, Habakkuk, despite the current circumstances, he trusts God. The God is able to bring justice. Will you trust God? I'm going to finish by reading from the book of Hebrews. Turn up with me to chapter 10, verse 35. And remember that, what I described as that throwaway line that Habakkuk gave, chapter 2, verse 4, the second half of it. It was just like his throwaway line that he gave. And you think that little statement about how the righteous will live by faith, that the writer to the Hebrews picks up that same quote. And I've now shared with you most of the times that that quote is used in the New Testament. We looked up Acts 13 in our first talk. We looked up Galatians and Romans in the second talk. And this is the third context in which this is um, uh, quoted in the New Testament. So Hebrews chapter 10. And it's brought up in this same context that are you going to be someone that perseveres? Are you going to be someone that trusts God despite the circumstances? So Hebrews 10 verse 35. And you've got to remember it's a sermon that the writer of the Hebrews is giving. So do not throw off your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For just in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. 